This show is brought to you by The Makery, the podcast network for makers. Hey guys, Jeremy here with Simple Little Life and welcome to episode number 19 of the Simple Little Life podcast. I hope you are doing well. Hopefully you have had a wonderful weekend and a good start to your work week. Hopefully the daylight saving switcheroo hasn't got you too messed up. You know, I don't know I, I don't know why we still continue with this daylight saving thing. And I know some places don't. I commend those of you who have given it up. I understand kind of looking at the history of it a bit, you know, maybe one of the reasons they wanted to do it was to save, uh, you know, fuel on, on having to burn lamps or something like that. But I think in the day and age that we live in, it doesn't make sense to just arbitrarily move the clocks around. It completely messes me up every single time it happens, whether we're falling behind or jumping or springing ahead. You know, like we got an extra hour of sleep this weekend. Woohoo! And not really. We, we kind of did. So you, you sleep in a little bit compared to what it would have been the day before. Uh, but then on Sundays, you know, we like to watch a movie as a family. We usually like to start the movie around 7, 7.30 so that we can be done by 9. But now with the daylight saving thing, it was essentially like we were finished at 10 o'clock. The whole thing doesn't make sense, but I know I'm going to be kind of adjusting for the next couple days. Uh, but that's not to say that we didn't have a wonderful weekend. Uh, I actually worked all day on Saturday, and then Sunday was all about the food, and it was really, really good. Uh, we have this tradition on Sundays. Usually, I will start the day with a large breakfast. And uh, we've got a, a flat top griddle, like a big, huge outdoor griddle. And I mean, it's pretty big. We need a big one. I mean, there's six people in our family, a lot of mouths to feed. And so I can prepare a lot of food at one time on that thing. Uh, it was great. So we start out with the bacon, put the bacon on there, crisp it up nice, uh, put it on a, pa- on a plate with paper towel, you know, kind of get all that extra fat out of there. And then with all that bacon grease on the flat top, then I throw on these shredded hash browns and onions. And then once that's done, we actually fry up some eggs inside. I find this this flat top griddle, it's it's way too hot. I can't cook eggs on it unless I just want to scramble them or, or do them really quickly. Um, but even cooking with this thing at the lowest possible setting, it's too hot to cook eggs properly if you want to fry like a nice over easy egg or whatever. But uh, we did that in the morning. And once the dishes were cleaned up, we had a little hour or so in between there. And then we started these ribs, these pork ribs. And so uh, we brought them out of the fridge. Got them, you know, warmed up to room temperature. My wife put on this rub. We let the rub sit there for about an hour or so. Uh, maybe we'd like to give it a little bit more, but we just kind of got around to it a little later. But we put these things on and we did the three, two, one method. So we had three hours of smoke at around 200 degrees Fahrenheit and then two hours of braising. So we put them in a pan. Uh, they were kind of lifted off of the bottom of the pan with a grate. And then we put apple juice in there covered that with aluminum foil, and we braised that for two hours. And then once that was done, took it off, and we put the sauce on. My wife made her own barbecue sauce, and then we cooked them up there for just under an hour. And they were absolutely incredible. You know you know when you get those ribs where you, you grab the bone and it just slides right out? If you choose to eat ribs with your hands, which is, I think, how they should be eaten. Uh, but they're really good ones. The ones we had last night, like you pick up a piece of meat, and it almost just kind of disintegrated in your own hand. It was so delicious. Some of the best barbecue I've had in a good long while. And so that was a real excellent cap to the weekend. And then we did our uh, you know, our Sunday night movie, and it was a lot of fun. 
One thing I did yesterday with my daughter, and this is something that all of my kids do, and I never thought about it much, uh, but building models, you know, model airplanes are really into my boys are so into aviation that they love building these model planes and you know they'll work on these things for about a week and they're like hey look what I did dad I'm like hey that's cool looks good and we started a tradition uh I don't know a couple months ago and that my boys also made these radio controlled airplanes uh, there's a YouTube channel called flight test and they've got all these different plans that you can take foam board just the big pages of white foam board. Uh, if you're not familiar, that's it's kind of like a little piece of styrofoam in the middle with paper glued to either side. Uh, really inexpensive, you know, arts and crafts. Kids use it for their school and all that stuff. Uh, but they have these plans where you can cut out these shapes, glue things, hot glue things. You know, they'll use like barbecue skewers and stuff to add rigidity and braces and struts. And then you can buy power packs from them. And so that'll come with whatever motor, uh, batteries, transmitters, servos, all the different things you need to make this airplane fly. And they're pretty cool. You know, for relatively an inexpensive price tag, uh, you can get into RC planes. And the thing that's really nice about them is if you crash them, you can just make a new one, right? It's not like the old <laughs> the old balsa wood airplanes where you spend hours and hours gluing all these little tiny pieces of wood together. And then you've got the tissue paper that you cover it with. And if you crash one of those, you just see people tearing up inside. Uh, these aren't like that at all. So it's kind of cool. But my kids had wanted to do that, and uh, well, they were doing that, and then my one son said, hey, can we build one together? And so I thought, yeah, sure, let's do that. And so I, I did one with my one son, and then we thought, okay, well, now I'll do one with my other son. And so we kind of have this, it's not fully a tradition yet, but it's kind of a thing we do, and I wanted to make it a tradition. And uh, I was getting ready to do something with my daughter, and she's not quite as into the airplanes as my boys are. And she said, well, what if we make a model? And I was like, sure, let's do that. And Man, oh man, there's a lot to these models. Uh, apparently, the models come in different levels. I couldn't imagine what a level 5 would be because what we're working on right now is a level 2. Uh, I also, I guess my son's kind of educated me that different brands are kind of known for being more hard or more challenging than other brands. But uh, my daughter and I started on this model yesterday. And I'm not joking. There's parts that I'm painting that are about an eighth of an inch by an eighth of an inch. And I have to paint this little part and let that dry and then I have to glue it to another part. Uh, we're working on, actually, it's going to be an airplane. It's, I forget which bomber it is, but it's one of the World War, I think it's a World War One bomber. No, World War Two bomber. I don't know for sure. But we're working, yeah, it wouldn't be World War One, but we're working on these parts and, and we're making the seat. And it is incredible how much detail there is in this seat. Uh, this seat is like smaller than my thumb. And there's literally, you take one side of the seat and the other side of the seat. And then what would essentially be like the pan, you glue these three parts together. And then you glue little tiny controls on there. Some of these little controls are like thinner than like a mechanical pencil lead. It is unbelievable how small and how tedious this work is. And it made me realize like I never gave any credit to my kids doing these models. I'm like, oh, yeah, that looks good. Good job, buddy. Nice model. Not knowing what actually has gone into that. It is unbelievable. And if these are skills that I do not have. I don't have like micro fine motor skills in, in these areas. It's funny because my kids are far superior at this stuff than I am. 
I think if you got good at building models and you did it regularly, you could be that person, you know, in the mall that could write people's names on a grain of rice. Like, like it is absolutely nuts. And my goodness, I, I find it very, very challenging. It's something that I have to persist. I have to, okay, let's do, let's keep going with this. Uh, brand new territory to me. And I never really applied, never used to think about the fact that uh, model building could be a useful skill. But I, I really do think it it is. Also, with these models, there's so much detail in them that you could actually, like, you learn how things work and how things go together. Example with this airplane seat that we're making. You could literally take those parts, scale them up, and make a real, air quotes, a real chair. And so it's kind of neat, you know, like, I truly do think that that kids making models is going to translate to not experience necessarily, because it isn't experience, but a transferable skill set, if you will, to other projects. And I never, I never thought about that in any way, shape or form. Uh, but having done it myself now, we did it for about an hour and a half. I'm like, wow, this is actually pretty interesting. Uh, so we are a long ways away from having this model finished. Um, but it's fun. Uh, if you're a father, uh, you've got kids, you know, I think one of the most important things kids want is just to be around their parents. Uh, hang out with their mom, hang out with their dad, hang out with them together. And I would encourage you to look for things like this. You know, is there something that that your child is into that you would be into as well that you could do together? Obviously, you have your interests, your own hobbies as a dad. They might not like that stuff. And there's some times where, you know what, as a parent, we just need to involve ourselves with what our kids are into. But then the other side of it is if you can find something that you're both excited about, you know, it kind of something that's sort of new for both of you, but you can learn and kind of develop this new thing together. It's a lot of fun. I think it's excellent for the relationship. Your kids will be so much better for it. And so I would actually issue that as a challenge to fathers out there. Uh, try to find something that you actually like doing that your kid likes doing and develop a hobby together. Something you guys do together. It is a lot of fun and uh, very, very rewarding. Yesterday, after I was done crossing my eyes, painting these little tiny parts, I needed to go outside and I needed to uh, to broaden my my distance. So I finally got my bow back. I don't know if I mentioned on this podcast or not, but I did a really dumb mistake and I dry fired my bow, my compound hunting bow, and the string exploded <laughs> like it typically would. Uh, I got away very lucky. I ended up impregnating some of the string under my skin. It's really odd because it actually there's just one little hole and I went to pull the string out and it was actually like under the surface of my skin. So I don't know how it kind of went in and then went around. It's kind of weird and kind of gross, but I sent the bow in. I had a new string ordered. Uh, they had to replace the bearings on my lower cam. And yesterday after, you know, after this small stuff, I thought I'm going to go sight in my bow. And so it took a little while. It was about eight inches off just because of the fact, you know, you've got the peep sight in your string. I uh, had to spend a little time. I lost one arrow, but I got my bow sighted in, and I'm ready for hunting season again, which I'm excited about, especially with this warmer weather that we have. Uh, the way that I hunt, it, it, I don't even call it, I really don't think I hunt. I just grocery shop with a bow. I'll typically wait until we have a very windy day, and I'll use that to my advantage. You see, my parents have property, and their property is located in an archery-only zone, uh, it's 212 is the hunting zone here in Alberta. And if I get a windy day, there's almost always deer there. And they've got a lot of trees on their property. And so if I can find out where the deer are, 
which is usually fairly easy. You can, you know, follow some tracks, you kind of walk around. Um, but then I'll just use the wind and I'll, you know, I'll make sure that that wind hides my scent and a lot of times hides my sound. And I think the closest I got when I shot one deer there is a really nice buck and I actually shot him from five yards away. And so that's the kind of <laughs> kind of how easy it can be if I use if I you know do it the right way. You got the wind, and I, I can come in from the right angles and use the right trees and stuff. But I mean, I don't even wear a camouflage when I hunt. I go out in jeans and a t-shirt or jacket, however cold it is, whatever. And uh, I'm excited. So we got a couple of weeks left. At the end of November is when hunting season closes, and so I lost about a month with my bow being gone. But that was really nice to get excited in and get ready for it. So I'm looking forward to that coming up. So this past week, I released a YouTube video, and it was about a knife grinding jig that I made. And this jig was something that I'd never really seen before. And I'll kind of explain it to you real quickly. There's nothing to it. Essentially, it's a piece of four inch by quarter inch flat bar that's 14 inches long is what I cut it to. Right in the middle of that bar, I welded a piece of one inch by one inch steel square stock. And that comes out up about eight or nine inches. I actually didn't measure it. I just kind of marked the length that needed to be based on the knife that I wanted. And the idea is that I could rest the knife, the tip of the knife down, bring the handle up to the top of this one inch square tower that kind of comes up from the middle of it, run a bolt through one of those holes that I would use for the pins, and that would hold the knife at a 45 degree angle. I've got a particular knife that I use, and it's called, I call it the barbecue knife, and I like my plunge line to be at 45 degrees. Uh, that does two things for me. One, cosmetically, I can match the 45 degree uh, end the, where the handle ends at that area. It's nice to have those lines kind of lining up. Uh, but the second thing it does, that this is kind of a Western style full tang kitchen knife, and it allows me with that 45 degrees, I can actually grind uh, the entire cutting edge, the entire bottom of that blade can be ground thin. I don't need a sharpening choil. There's no, like, I, I don't know what the term, the terms are lost on me right now, but uh, basically it allows me to have the entire thing uh, sharpenable while, you know, not having your hands too close to it. So if you've ever seen the knife, uh, I've got a YouTube video about it. Uh, it kind of makes sense, but... When you're grinding at 45 degrees, uh, typically I do this with the Bill Banky file guide so that everything's consistent from one side to the other. But I find it very challenging. I, I don't know. Something, you know, if I'm grinding and I'm holding the blade uh, horizontal or basically 90 degrees to the platen, it's a lot different. It's a lot easier than having to come in at 45 all the time. And then with this particular knife, I've got a tall grind. It's a full flat grind. And it's about an inch to an inch and a half. And lately, uh, you know, I'll rough in my grinds, I'll heat treat, and then post heat treat, I'll clean it up, and I'm getting everything good. It's going great. But then as I'm chasing the final grinds, I'm cleaning everything up, my grind line at the top seems to be all over the place. And I, I, the last couple of weeks, I've wrecked several of these knives just chasing that grind line, trying to finish it all up. I mean, I'll eventually do something with those blades, but they're not the blades that my customer had ordered. And so I was doing this last week, and I thought, you know what? I don't want to waste another knife. I don't want to wreck another knife, so I'm going to build this jig. So I built the jig, and when I built this, if, if you go watch the YouTube video, I was very precise with every step. I mean, I TIG welded this little bar stock on. Uh, even you know before I did that, I actually machined it flat in my milling machine so that this thing would sit exactly square on all four sides. I put a lot of work into it. 
Uh, I had a little bit of warpage when I was welding, straighten that out in the press, you know, everything was done properly. And I started grinding on the one side and I was really, really excited. It was working well. The grinds were going beautifully and basically I was coming in, you know, I had my plunge line starting to get nicely cleaned up, cutting it, coming into our cutting edge, you know, we're at about three thousandths of an inch. And then I flipped it over and it was really disappointing. I don't know what the deal was. Uh, the material was coming off at a different place than it was on the other side of the blade. And I thought, you know what, I'm going to put this video up anyways. Um, I want to share this idea of the jig. I've never seen a jig that looks like this. It's nothing fancy or complicated. And then this one was kind of just like a, it was a bit of a prototype. See if this concept would work. And if it does, I can certainly get a little bit more elaborate with this jig, possibly put a hinge. Uh, right now, I actually set my angle with a 3 8 jacking bolt and just one of them. Uh, the other thing I had to do was build a larger work rest. So I ended up making a 24-inch long by 6-inch uh, work rest out of hot rolled steel. Interesting thing to note is, uh, I don't think I talked about it in the YouTube video, but when I put that work rest on my KMG grinder, it sounds completely different. It doesn't sound good. Um, I think the, I don't know if it puts strain on the frame of the grinder, just with that big of a piece of metal out there. Uh, also the way the KMG, um, work rests, the way they're set up, you've got your bar that you slide in and then there's way more weight on the right side of that. It's kind of a cantilever design. So maybe that type of a twisting strain is, I don't know, but the motor itself, I don't know if it's the bearings or what it is. But it's, it's definitely kind of got like, it's, it's working harder with this work rest on. Um, but at the same time, this work rest is really flat. And I don't think that has anything to do with why this jig didn't work. But like I said, I wanted to get this video out there. And overwhelmingly, uh, the comments that are coming in, they're, they're great. There's a lot of really good ideas, excellent feedback. Uh, but one comment that keeps coming quite regularly is that maybe my freehand grinds weren't as even as I had thought they would be. And I hate to think about that, uh, but the more that I do think about that, the more I wonder myself if that was the case. So I've actually cut out one of these knives again. It's actually in my liquid nitrogen right now, and I'm going to grind this out again. Uh, what I'm going to do is try grinding this from, you know, there's no bevels on it whatsoever, using my jig. And obviously, if, if it starts going awry, I can stop it before it's too late. Right. You know, I could do half of the grind and if it's really inconsistent from one side to the other, um, that obviously is a problem. I could stop. Say, OK, now we're going to jump back to hand grinding this thing. Uh, one, one comment is like maybe my blade was warped. It is definitely not warped um, after heat treat. It had a warp, but I straightened it. And that's something I check for all the time when I'm making my knives. Uh, you know, if I'm halfway through grinding and something's a little bit weird, I'll always just put on my granite plate, run my height gauge around to make sure that, you know, I haven't created a warp during some of the grinding process. Uh, so it's absolutely flat as can be. And that leads me again to believe that maybe... Maybe my freehand grinds on that initial blade weren't quite right. I don't know. Uh, that's stuff we don't like to think about, <laughs> especially, you know, it's not the first time I've made a knife. Uh, I've got some experience grinding, but I think, you know, sometimes you got to be honest with yourself and give yourself a little reality check and say, you know what? Even though I've done this before, I might be uh, falling back into some not so great habits or I don't know. It's, it's good to be real with yourself and say that's a possibility. So I'm going to address, I'm going to take a look at that. And then obviously if I find that is the case, definitely I'll follow up on YouTube and announce my shame. So you know what? I really kind of 
pooched these freehand grinds, but Anyways, I've got a, a knife build video coming out for this weekend, and this one's going to be like a vlog style video, but a single video for a single knife build. Uh, typically what I've done recently in, in, in knife videos is it'll be either fast forward and then I'll put the voiceover version on Patreon. Um, I've done in the past like three or four part videos, but I don't like those. I don't want to, I'd rather see an entire project. So I'm going to try this one, see how it goes over. You know, I, I kind of talk to the camera, explain every step. I can hold the knife, point at it. And so now I'm going to do this, 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 and I can run through some footage, fast forward footage, slow-mo footage, whatever it is, but kind of basically vlog through the entire knife build. And my goal with this is to keep this build video under like 15 minutes, I say. I don't know. I shouldn't ever say out loud here because it might end up being something completely different. And honestly, I don't want to be held to uh, some type of a constraint that I put on myself just willy-nilly. But that'll be coming out this week. And then also I kind of wrapped up. Well, I didn't do a wrap-up video yet, but uh, with October being over, that was when I was trying to do a 30-day video challenge. And Again, the goal with that was to try and get back into the rhythm, the routine of making content. And to that end, it was phenomenally successful. Uh, but a, a product of doing that that I never really saw coming is that I am more inspired now to make content than I was when I started this little challenge for myself. And I find that a lot of times if we force ourselves into doing something, like I'm going to do this, and, and a challenge where it takes discipline every day, we often have this preconceived notion of what the benefit of that will be. You know, what's the product of that challenge? But often I find that there's other things that we couldn't have even imagined that come out as good from these challenges. And I honestly had no clue I would be so excited to make videos again, but I am absolutely, like, I'm stoked. I'm just jacked. I'm, I, I want to make videos. I've got ideas. I, I've you know, I can think of like, oh, I'm going to try filming it like this, or I'm going to try setting up the camera here. And it's just kind of built this momentum of excitement and enthusiasm. And I had no clue. I thought it might be the opposite. I thought, well, you know what? I'll do this 30-day challenge, try and make as many videos as I can in 30 days. I'll probably need a break after it and want to take a week off, but at least I'll get my editing speed, my production speed back up there. I definitely got that back up. It's faster for me than it was in the beginning, but I don't want to stop. I'm just like, let's keep going. So I'm really excited about that. And uh, it's just interesting, something I thought you might like to, to hear. And then also, if I'm not sure how many of you out there are interested in starting YouTube or or what the deal is with that, but I've talked about it a little bit here, you know, the process of my new channel. And I, I was able to actually reach the threshold for monetization. That threshold right now on YouTube is a thousand subscribers, which I ended up getting right away because I, I announced it on my other channel. I think a lot of people came over from there uh, to show their support, and I appreciate that. And then you also needed 4,000 hours of watch time within the last 12 months. And I think I had until May of next year to do that. And it's really interesting because if I had a, a spell where I was like making a lot of videos, you know, several videos in a week, obviously watch time goes up. And then I'll have a month where I just don't do anything with the channel. And obviously watch time goes down. And then uh, with these last 30 days trying to create as much content as possible, uh, I reached the threshold and I got a notification from YouTube saying, if you'd like, you can monetize your channel. Now, previously I'd mentioned on this podcast that I'm not going to monetize that channel, but I thought, you know what, let me just see what this is about. I'd heard people talk about I think the uh, potato jet had a second channel and I remember he reached his threshold and he did a video about how long it took him to actually be able to monetize so I thought you know what I wonder how long it takes now so I 
pressed the button, said, yes, uh, inspect my channel, basically review it, see if it's good to, to monetize. And I did that in the morning, and by the evening, I was monetized, monetizable. I haven't actually turned monetization on any videos. And I know I'd mentioned I wasn't going to, but, but then again, this whole experiment with a second channel... I want, I'm, I'm kind of curious what the CPM is on a channel that's not heavily knife-making, more, shall we say, safe stuff. Uh, I know that uh, on a knife-making specific channel, like Simple Life is mostly knife-related stuff, um, they don't sell as many ads because somehow YouTube has deemed that uh, watching somebody make something with their hands that becomes an inherently useful object to all people on Earth I mean, there's no one on earth that that exists <laughs> better without a knife than with a knife. We all use knives. It's an incredibly useful tool, so many different versions of it. Uh, but somehow YouTube says that's not safe. Advertisers don't want to advertise on that. So I'm curious if I were to monetize my second one, say some of the bicycle videos or something like that, what the CPM rating is on that. And, and that way I could know for myself. So yeah, as a matter of fact... I create this content on a completely different channel and it gets ad rates at this level, uh, whereas the one about knife making stuff gets ads at this level. I'm very interested in that. I might do that. And then I might create some content specifically to monetize it, make some videos that I'm trying to get a lot of views. I don't know for sure, but I just figured I'd kind of share this. I've talked about it. I know there's a lot of folks out there uh, thinking about getting into YouTube or kind of wondering what it's all about. And so this has been kind of interesting for me. I'll probably actually do a little video on my other channel, kind of going over some of the metrics uh, to kind of explain to people how this is, from what I can tell, how YouTube is kind of working right now. <sighs> Anyways, that was that 30-day challenge. I'm excited that's over, but I'm also excited to keep making content on both channels. Uh, like I said, I've got this... Uh, this knife video coming up. I should finish that up this week. And we are getting really busy um, with the Christmas season. And I'm actually getting more excited. Uh, I know probably from here until the week before Christmas, I'll be working every single Saturday. And it's going to be long, long hours. Um, last year, we were getting up at, you were starting work at 6. And we we're working till 8 or 9 at night. A lot of nights. Uh, nights or nights when our kids had stuff, we had to be in place in the evenings. We obviously couldn't do that, but oh, it's going to be intense. But I'm actually really, really excited about it. Uh, you know, I think I've made a lot of improvements with these processes that that my wife does for these signs with tooling and all that stuff. So who knows? Every year it seems we come up with a new tool that we buy or a new process that really changes things. And maybe that's part of the reason why I'm so excited is that I'm um, just like opportunities. You know. Uh, you really grow when the pressure's on, when things are really hard and difficult. That's where you see where the weaknesses are and you can make improvements. And so I'm excited to see if we find that again. We find areas like, you know what, this is just ridiculous. This is way too slow. How can we make it better? Every year, get better and better. I'd like to thank the sponsor of this episode, Isotunes. Uh, if you like to listen to things, you probably do if you're listening to this. And, uh, you know, you're working in your shop you want to have your hearing saved. You've got loud machines. Even on a drill press sometimes, it's, it's too obnoxious. You know, you need some type of hearing protection. Uh, but at the same time, you know, you want to be able to listen to your music or your podcasts. Well, isotunes are a wonderful solution. Bluetooth connectivity, they have a certain decibel reduction rating. Uh, they're not like sound-canceling headphones. They just block out the sound. It's, it's like a really high-quality 
earplugs stuck in your ear with a little tiny hole and just speakers designed to pump in whatever it is you want pumped in there at a comfortable and safe level. Particularly if I'm out mowing my lawn, we've got like five acres of lawn and it can take up to five hours in the summertime to mow the grass. That is time wasted, not time wasted. It, it needs to be done, but you're out there and it's it's dirty and it's dusty and you stink like grass and the sun's beating down. The job is so much more pleasant when you can just crank your favorite music, listen to your favorite podcasts, and isotunes allow you to do that, and they do it very, very well. Uh, they sent me a pair of these earplugs. Uh, I think, which ones are they? I forget what they are, but I had purchased previously the isotunes Pro, and I probably had them for about two years, and I used them almost every day in the shop. They've held up really well. There's no issues, you know, they, they connect seamlessly, they stay connected. I don't ever have to go in there and reconnect, and uh, I'm really, really happy with them. Uh, definitely, definitely excellent products to use. So go check out Isotunes. I'll put a link in the description uh, to their website. Uh, they just want to kind of get their name out there and uh, send us some product, and I'm using these ones. I've also got a new set that I'm really excited about for my boys to use because they, uh, <laughs> they mow the lawn for me too sometimes. And uh, I have actually let them use my other set with different ear tips. Uh, but then I'm stuck in the, the garage working away in silence. Don't want that. So two pairs is going to be really handy for our household. All right, back to the show. Uh, there's one other thing I kind of wanted to discuss, something I've been experimenting with. And this isn't really uh, overly fantastically exciting, but work pants. I'm hard on work pants. I destroy work pants, particularly the crotch area, and I have no clue why. If I buy a pair of Wranglers, which, you know, in theory, I think, okay, those are some good, rough and tumbly, rugged denim. Six months, that's all I'll get out of them, six months. I've, I've blown the crotch out of Wranglers sometimes in a month. I don't know why. I don't know what it is. It's not like I'm riding horses. It's not like I'm doing acrobatics. But somehow, everything, boom, six months, Carhartt's done. My wife will fix them. She'll she'll mend them. But you can only mend a crotch so many times before it's completely gone. There, there's nothing there to grab onto to make the repair. I don't know what it is. Uh, until now, some of the best pants I've actually found are the cheap jeans from Costco, like the Kirkland brand, the, the stretchy ones that are so fashionable. Uh, I've been wearing those for work lately, and they actually last really well. Like I said, I've I've tried Carhartts. I've had a lot of pair of Carhartts, a lot of Wranglers, and you you pay that kind of money, and they last for six months. I'm like, oh come on. But I remembered back to when I used to work in the states, and I would go to Walmart and buy Dickies pants, the original, the Dickies 874s. Those ones actually lasted quite well, and they've got a different fit. They're a little bit more relaxed. And I was on Amazon the other day. I don't know what I was looking for, but Somehow I saw these Dickies, and I was like, you know what? I wonder if I should try these again. Now, the Walmarts that we have in Canada, they do sell Dickies, but they're not the same. I don't care what anybody says. They're just they're just different. They fit different. They're cut different. Uh, but they also don't ever have my size in stock. Uh, you can get the waist as big as a highway if you need to. I mean, they've got, like, size whatever waist. But I can't get anything over 32-inch inseam. And the, the Dickies I typically like to run are my pants are usually like a 34 to a 36 inch inseam. Interesting with the Dickies though is that I ordered a set of 34, 36 and they came 
and I couldn't even get the button closed. Uh, when I wear any other pants, my Levi's, uh, Wranglers, anything, I'm a 34-inch waist. <laughs> With the Dickies, I'm a 38. And it was kind of interesting. So I ended up sending these first pair back because I literally just couldn't get them on. And I ordered a 38. They fit great. And uh, I'm actually really, really enjoying them. Uh, if you've ever worn the original Dickies pants, you know that they're fairly stiff when you first get them. They're really good for, like, you know, anti-wrinkle, uh, stain resistance. You can, like, pour water on them and it beads off. Obviously, the more you wash it, uh, the more those features disappear. But they also get more comfortable. And they still are really tough. And so I, th- I remember wearing Dickies back in the day before we had kids. And I was always, like, working in California. I'd wear them for, like, two to three years. And they are still holding up. So I'm excited to give these a try. And uh, the one thing with the Dickies, these original ones, there's no extra pockets, which I think is actually kind of a good thing. Um, you know, if you got car hearts, it obviously depends on what you do. But for me, I work inside of my shop. I've got a very small area that I'm in. And typically, I'm doing like a specific task for a certain time, and then I'm on to the next task. When I used to work at airports, I mean, often I'd be servicing conveyors that are in between floors. And so at those times, you know, I'm, I'm crawling up ladders, I'm up and down catwalks, you know, above a ceiling of one floor, but below the f- floor of another. And the ability to have a lot of different tools on me was important. But with these dickies, I don't have that option, which I actually like because I don't need to carry a lot of tools with me in what I do for a living now. Often I find if I've got those pockets, somehow they just get filled up. And I'll end up, you know, having a few tools from one task and I'll go to the next task and I'll work the rest of the day with a few wrenches in my pockets that I don't need the rest of the day. And it kind of drives me nuts and I'll catch myself. I'm like, oh, why do I have these things in here? So that's one benefit to these types of pants. Again, it's not going to work for everybody, but that's a feature about them that I actually do enjoy. I appreciate the fact that I can't load these things up. They've got two pockets in the front, two pockets in the back, classic fit, and I'm hoping these things last me a little while. Hopefully I don't blow the crotch out of these in like three weeks like I do on most pants. But I'll keep you updated as to how these things work. And they're they're fairly inexpensive. Um, they're not cheap, cheap. Not as cheap as a Costco jeans, which is going to be a hard hard sell for these, I guess. Because when you pay like $14 for a pair of jeans that lasts you for a year, uh, it doesn't matter how how terrible they look. That's a pretty tempting offer in my books. Anyways, I've got two recommendations for you this week. Uh, the first one I just actually thought of while I was recording this video, and uh, that one is Red Beard Ops YouTube channel. He recently put out a video on how to get into knife making, and particularly the, the steps, the tools, and some of the processes as a beginner that you can use. Uh, the thing I like about this video is that he actually did, you know, say you got the process of cutting out the profile of the knife. He showed it in different ways that you can do it. And he actually did it with different tools. So he's got one where, you know, you kind of drill holes really close together and then cut out in between with a hacksaw and then clean that up with a file. Or you can jump to an angle grinder. And so as a resource for people that are looking to get into knife making, I think that is a fantastic video. And his channel is just really, really good. Very informative. Uh, does a lot of really nice uh, voiceover work. Uh, super good guy. So I'm going to put a link to that in the show notes. The second one is a channel I actually just discovered uh, this morning, actually. I, I got up really early to work, <laughs> work out and watch YouTube. And you may have heard of this, but it's called Salvage Workshop. And... I've only been through, I think, two of his videos. They're usually quite long that I'm noticing, like half an hour videos. Uh, but he's, he does a lot of cool stuff. Um, 
you know, is working on overhauling a big Caterpillar tracked loader. And so it's just kind of uh, a mixture of the camera on and him kind of talking about what he's doing with the camera there. And then fast forward footage. Uh, interesting. I, I'm into that kind of stuff. I could honestly watch people fix up old tractors all day long. And so I find that channel very fascinating. You might enjoy it as well. Well, I think that's pretty much going to wrap up this episode. I uh, hope you guys have a wonderful week. Hopefully you guys have fun, find some inspiration in your shop. And um, yeah, again, I challenge you, if you've got children, look for ways you can do something with them. Spend time with them, a hobby that you both enjoy. Uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun, very rewarding. And it's so easy to spend time together when it's something you're looking forward to, right? I mean, if, you know, if my daughter wanted to do makeup and stuff, I, yeah, I, I, would, I would help her do that. But it's not something I would have a personal interest in. Uh, when you can find these hobbies that you're both excited about, it's, uh, it's just so easy. And it's a lot of fun. Thanks for listening, guys. Uh, check out all the other shows on the Makery Network. A lot of great content out there. And we will see you in the next episode. Cheers. If you like this show, take a look at our other shows made for makers just like you at www.makery.network.